Think of this. You're shown a picture. It's black and white and sort of blurry. And you're asked what animal you see. You take a closer look. You can't really make anything out. Oh, but then, yeah, there it is. It's a duck. Yeah, that's it. It's a duck. What else could it be? Well, now you're told it could also be a rabbit. A rabbit? Really? Oh, yeah, I see that. Just about. But it's definitely mostly a duck. Almost entirely a duck. In fact, I'm not really sure anyone could see a rabbit there, to be honest. What applies to the duck-rabbit illusion is also true of life too. Think about Brexit, climate change, Marmite, even Covid. Once you see the issue one way, it's really hard to see it differently. Once you see it as a duck, you can't see it as a rabbit. You surround yourself with people who see it similarly to you, and that reinforces that you're right. Can we even understand how others can come to a different conclusion to us? Do we even know anyone who sees a rabbit when we see a duck? Now, there's many good reasons why we like to see the world in a simple way, stick to the image, and surround ourselves with people that agree with us. It's actually nicer being around people that agree, people that nod their heads rather than shake them. But maybe we could all be a bit happier by embracing difference, or at least from accepting that another point of view exists. I'm Paul Dolan, a professor of behavioural science at the London School of Economics, and this is the That Rabbit Podcast. I've spent years researching human happiness and behaviour, and I'm well aware of the comfort that can be found in conforming to core beliefs and from dismissing anyone who dares to disagree with them. But now I'm interested in whether our polarised culture actually diminishes us. In these first five episodes, I'm going to be looking at some of the issues that really divide us. I'm going to try and find out whether polarisation really is fundamental to how we work. I want to try and find a way through all of this. I think my motivation throughout will be one of acceptance. I don't want us to agree about everything. Fuck that. But I do want us to accept that we can disagree. To accept that I might see a rabbit when you are convinced it's a duck. And I want us to remind ourselves that there are many more things that will make us similar rather than different. We both see an animal in the image after all. To help me work our way through all of this, I've invited along Rory Sutherland. He is Vice Chair of Ogilvy, one of the world's leading advertising agencies. He knows a thing or two about human behaviour, having put into practice many of the academic insights that people like me develop. He's also extremely posh, which in a polarised world really should have put me off him. But actually, we get on really well. We first met more than a decade ago at a meeting in number 10 to discuss how to use behavioural science to get people to save more for their retirement. I do remember us agreeing that it's just as important to get skinflints to spend as it is to get spendthrifts to save. How are you? I'm so pleased you're on this with me. I've got this perception of you as someone who knows a thing or two about human behaviour. So I'm hoping you're not going to let me down on that. You never know. I mean, uh, it's uh, so marvellously contradictory that uh, I always think the mistake has been trying to understand human behaviour as a kind of Newtonian science with rules. Whereas so often, of course, the tiniest change in context completely changes meaning, that changes the emotional response and that changes the behaviour. So attempts to kind of... Well, there you go. You see, you know that I just use these two words when I teach all the time, context matters. That's all I say every time I teach. And, you know, context is going to be so important for our discussions, I think. What we're going to do is try and navigate our way through some polarised positions to see if we can reconcile them sometimes maybe get people to accept a different point of view at other times and maybe you and i might fall out on the way too that'd be interesting <laughs> be first. let's actually set that as our goal let's see if we can actually yeah, okay, fall, we'll out by the end. fall out about something we'll see if we can actually fall out about these things in this episode i want to talk about relationships and the judgments we make about them specifically about women when it comes to the m's marriage and monogamy i want to start here because in all of my years researching and writing on human happiness and behavior 
Literally nothing has caused such a fuss as what I said at the Hay Festival in May 2019. If you're a man, you should probably get married. If you're a woman, don't bother. <laughs> Hay is a literary festival, and I was there to talk about my new book, Happy Ever After. See, if you're a man, you, you basically calm down. I made the point to emphasise the usual academic caveats around causality and the need for more research. She, on the other hand, has to put up with that, and she dies sooner. But the response to that talk on social media was unlike anything I'd ever experienced. Suddenly, I was at the centre of a storm. In the papers, on Twitter, my email inbox. At Prof Paul Dolan. Paul Dolan. At Prof Paul Dolan. Some of the comments were pretty unpleasant and personal. He is born of a mother. She must be really unhappy when her son gives such blasts. And to be honest, even talking about it now two years later makes me feel a bit uneasy. It's so ironic, because the main message of Happy Ever After is to be less judgmental of how others live. And yet the response to my talk was to remind me just how much people really do judge other people's relationships. Like we needed an expert to tell us that. Destroying the basic social unit of... It's a very cynical worldview that you have. Paul Dolan to speak on behalf of me or any single by choice woman. Although hurtful, that experience made me even more interested in marriage and monogamy and our views and expectations of women in particular. Single women are called selfish. Those who have lots of sex are called sluts. We're going to hear from women who have had very different experiences and who want very different things from their relationships. It will be interesting to see how you might judge them. And in fact, throughout this whole series, I'd really love to hear from you about what you think. Throughout, we're going to be hearing from high-profile thinkers and members of the public. We've done Twitter surveys, and we've also asked people to send in voice notes. I mean, from what I've seen, I think girls are a lot happier in relationships. I mean, I know I am. To be honest, I don't like the idea of commitment and I like having fun. I like sleeping around. It makes me feel good. I think that women are happier in monogamous relationships. I think it's much harder for women to sleep around and not get kind of emotionally attached. It's just not in our makeup. I don't know. I do think I did try to be cool and non-monogamous when I was younger, but yeah, it just didn't sit that well. <laughs> People are always like, oh, but why are you single? You're such a lovely person. Right, let's have a think about what's going on here. Why is it that we're so judgmental about people's relationships? Rory, what do you make of all of this? It's worth remembering that if you have a stable community of monogamous relationships and only two or three people decide to become promiscuous within it, they disrupt the equilibrium quite severely. But one of the things that's interesting, though, about marriage is that one of the suggestions from a cultural evolution perspective is that marriage is an institution created for low-status males. All the high-status males get lots of wives... It's sexual socialism. I want to touch a little bit on the uh, monogamy or non-monogamy of women because there is some suggestion from evolutionary theory that actually there's considerable evolutionary benefit in the genetic diversity of offspring so that you would expect there to be a significantly large number of women who would have children with more than one father, basically. I just am really intrigued why we really want this one-size-fits-all approach, what it is about the human condition that makes us want a very good story that suggests things either point in one direction or the other. Well, I suppose it's interesting in that at one level, there will always be a degree of conflict within humanity because we're not a perfectly social species. So there probably is an inherent conflict there where you reach an equilibrium. And what society did was create a norm around monogamy as perhaps a stable, at least a stable aspiration, even if it isn't a stable reality. We're going to hear from two women who have very different views on marriage and the single life. But before that, 
Here's Naomi Banks with her views on sex. She's a singer and she recorded this voice note for me. What I love most about polyamory is that you tailor make your relationship to what makes you both feel most comfortable. And that's obviously such a personal thing and people's boundaries, their kinks and their comforts. It varies so much from one person to the next. And I feel like in your standard monogamous relationship, there's always a sort of element of honesty missing. I hate feeling like somebody is lying to me about who they find attractive and who they would like to sleep with. Like, of course, you're going to find people attractive. It doesn't mean you're off to shag them, but... Yeah, I think polyamory opens the door to decisions and like discussions on these things. The final thing that I think I would definitely consider as one of the most attractive parts of polyamory is that, you know, sex is fucking important. We are animals and we love sex. It's a fantastic voice note there from Naomi Banks. We actually did a survey before this podcast out on Twitter. So thank you to everybody that answered our questions. And and one of those questions was about whether you could love more than one person at the same time and whether when people said that they were either lucky or lying. We had three quarters of people thought that people were lucky, but 25% of people in our survey thought that they were lying. Why do you think we're suspicious of polyamorous relationships, Rory? First of all, of course, there's a big difference between polyamory with and without kids, I think. I think we need to draw a divide there. I think there's another problem with polyamory, which is that, of course, there are things that work very, very well when they work right up to the point when they're catastrophic. I do think that whatever type of relationships people are in, I think you've highlighted where perhaps in maybe even in public policy, our emphasis is not quite in the right place. We should be thinking much more about the children of the relationships and not about the partners in the relationships. And I think under those conditions, if we were to pay much more attention to the welfare of kids for those that have them, then I think there's a prospect that different relationship types could work just as well as one another. Now we're going to hear from Esther Ranson. I'm in my lockdown onesie. She's a journalist and a campaigner. But more importantly for us, Rory, she was married for more than 20 years to her husband, Desmond Wilcox, before he died in 2000. And so she had the last 20 years on her own. She also didn't get married until reasonably late. So she's had experience of life from all sides. She's also really lovely. And she's from an older generation and is known for being outspoken about her personal life. So you see, here am I. I've experienced being a single, pretty successful, I suppose you could say, unmarried, child-free until for 37 years and really not enthusiastic about getting married because 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 I didn't want to be with someone because I had to be with someone I wanted to be with someone because I really wanted to be with someone you see I'm contrasuggestible I suppose that always have been so the fact that when you're married you're supposed to be with your partner that you're married to annoys me. <laughs> yeah. and then then having married the man you know married him twice so there's no consistency don't ask me to be consistent oh don't ever anyone be consistent i mean that's boring so well actually so why why haven't you well you did it twice to the same man why haven't you done it a third time to somebody different well then you come to this wonderful word you used and i didn't which is intimacy do i want to be intimate with another man do i well i suppose if you presented me with a 25 year old quite interesting six foot two <laughs> i'm not sure never say never but the kind of people that chase me around the kitchen table is this is this like an advert that you're putting out now is this what you're doing now, <laughs> <laughs> now i know why you've come on <laughs> <laughs> 
Plumber right at my door. <laughs> anyway, that's no, 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 carry on with the plumber. I'm much more interested. In that. <laughs> but, but um, you see, I'm a peculiar old bird because I appear, I suppose, to be to have no privacy frontiers, to have no boundaries, talk to me about anything, ask me anything, all mm. those things. But when it comes to intimacy, I'm a bit careful and a bit boundaried, really. You know? Yeah, yeah. And I'm not sure, having had 27 years or so with Desi, whether there's room for anyone else in my heart. I'm not sure. Yeah, interesting. Esther, thank you for that. I just, I just got one quick final question, if I may, is the impact that your kids and grandkids have had on your life. Presumably good, <laughs> but I just wonder if you could say a little bit more about in what ways. It has been said that you love your children and you are in love with your grandchildren. And I do have to say that my late husband, of whom I spoke, was keener on having children initially than I was. Once I'd started, it's like getting married to the same man over and over again. I, was, I had three children, you know, and uh, that was lovely. Fabulous, fabulous, fabulous. Much more important, much more fun than any of my work, although most of my life was spent at work. So, you know, I treasure memories of our holiday time and times off together. And uh, then, blow me, two out of three of the children began to have children themselves. And um, transformative, totally transformative. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear her talk about her kids and grandkids. I've, I've actually often thought that it would be so much better to jump to the grandkids stage and miss out the kids bit. And again, with these kind of polarised positions, I remember when I, perhaps the most vilified I've been was when, um, when our kids were young when I was writing Happiness by Design and, and I said something about how I'd rather be in the gym than spend time with my kids and I, I can't think how anybody wouldn't think that because you would, wouldn't you? I mean, they're like, they're not a great deal of fun, are they? No, no, as a they're... fat, incredibly sedentary man, I'd much rather be with my kids than be in the gym. <laughs> yeah, but, okay. Uh, yeah. Well, again, I suppose that um, speaks to the point that there's obviously a huge variation across people but I'm sure there's lots of things that you would have rather been doing than spending time with your kids when they were uh, little and, if you say that out loud, you're judged really harshly, aren't you? What I do say, I mean, I had twins, and the great efficiency of batch processing your children is that the, the inconvenience and pain is more intense while they're young. But then there's this glorious age when they can both get out of the car unassisted, and when you don't have to strap them in and unfold pushchairs and everything else. They are rewarding. Yeah, so thank you for drawing attention to the rewardingness because uh, it enables me to have another plug to happiness by design where, you know, I talk about the pleasure and purpose principle. And I think that kids can, you know, bring you purpose and make you differently happy, I think, to life without them. But again, I'm just I'm just really interested in this idea that it is either one or the other that, that you can't. And, and, and if, if there's periods where they're not making you happy to say that out loud, is like a cardinal sin. But I think what we want to do is now, I think, is just move on to to people that do actually live differently. We're now going to hear from Joan Delfatori. She's someone who's been single all her life and has written loads about being single. She's a professor of English and legal studies at Delaware University. Let's hear what she had to say. I grew up in a very conservative Italian Catholic enclave in New Jersey. All four of my grandparents were Italian. The way that they lived, they might as well still have been back in Italy. It was a very uh, closed-in, very conservative community. And 
to put it mildly, I did not have role models, but I remember thinking when I was young as six or seven, and I, I found out, I'm sorry to say it this way, but it's relevant to what you asked, I could read a lot better than the other kids in my first grade class. And I remember thinking then, that was my ticket out, that I could find a way to live without having to be a wife and mother. Fantastic. So do you think, so? well, no, that is quite, that's super interesting. Do you think then that a lot of women in particular, particularly in societies where there's lots of gender inequality, do you think that they're choosing to, to marry as a way out of poverty or as, a, or as a way to get opportunity as opposed to, in, in some sense, you know, genuinely wanting to be married and have children? Some women do everything they can to avoid getting married. They see that as an escape. Whereas other women, you're absolutely right. They're sure that their marriage is going to be different, that their marriage is going to take them out of this. And I have no idea what it is that pushes button A rather than button B. Yeah, well, I mean, fundamentally, I guess people can just be different, right? I mean, but on the kids thing, I'm, I'm interested, did you ever have any recognition of the biological body clock? I know it sounds like an awful term, but there was there any point at which you were in your 30s or 40s where you thought, oh my God, I want kids? No, I never saw myself as a mother. And one of the things that people find hard to recognize, people will tend to assume when I say that, that it means I don't like children. I don't dislike children. I don't mind taking care of children. I never saw myself in the identity of a mother. And I can't explain that any more than I can explain why I am heterosexual. It's simply something that announced itself and there it is. And I can't explain it. Can we talk about sex? Oh, absolutely. Which one? Because I think that, <laughs> well, I don't know, just generally, I mean, let's have a, have a general chat about sex. I'm thinking particularly about whether people might inquire more into your sex life than they would if you were married. Like you're single, you know, well, where, where, like, are you, are you having sex? Do you have, like, where do you get it from? How do you, you know, has that been your experience in any way? I don't think I have ever been asked, was I having sex? I think what I was more likely to get was, I could not be complete unless I did. I think people, it's not so much they're curious, are you having sex? I think they're curious if you're not, or if they believe you're not, what's wrong with you? Right. I used to be shy about those questions, and I'm not shy about those questions anymore. The answer for me is very simply, I am unquestionably heterosexual, I find men sexually appealing. I do not find women sexually appealing. I do not experience that as a choice. That just came with the basic equipment. Mm. And I can see where a sexual relationship would be rewarding in many ways. But there are only two ways I know of to have a sexual relationship. Either you have a committed relationship with one individual or you have more of an eclectic experience. I am not willing to take the health and social risks of casual sex, and I don't want the rest of what comes with a dedicated relationship. I am certainly not turned off by sex. I am not disgusted by it. I am not asexual. It is simply not worth organizing my life around. So there's someone who seems to be pretty happy single, but I'm interested in it again. You know, it sort of goes to Esther's point as well, doesn't it? That we don't really trust her, do we? Just to start, uh, I think there's something there unambiguously we can all celebrate which is to grow up in that kind of community where you're under enormous social pressure to marry and to do nothing else 
I don't think there's anybody on the planet who actually laments the loss of that kind of pressure. Listen, I'm going to move us along to discuss some of these judgments a bit more in the time that we've got left. So one of the things that we've talked about implicitly, if not explicitly, is the idea that it provides a, a sort of glue to hold society together, right? These norms are evolutionary advantageous. They kind of set standards and rules that help societies cohere. And I think that's obviously one good reason why we might judge people who don't conform. There's actually quite significant differences across people in the way they do that. So there's this scale called social dominance orientation, where it's basically a measure of the extent to which you believe in structures and hierarchies and, you know, order to the world. And the more that you rate high on SDO, the more you believe in institutions like marriage and clear structures and institutions. And one of the things I think that's really interesting, particularly at the current time, is that support for marriage is extraordinarily high. And I think that one of the reasons for that is that whilst the rest of the world might be going to head in a handcart, at least we got marriage, right? So there's all these economic uncertainties and there's uncertainties about so many things in life, but marriage provides a foundation. It kind of gives us this bedrock. So I think that's a really, really important reason. I think that pressure to marry is changing generationally. And that business of going, you know, let me find you a nice man on the presumption that that's what you wanted, for instance. There's a great comedian, who made the point that every time she went to a wedding as a single woman, all her grandparents would go to her, point at the married couple and say, you'll be next, okay? And she jokingly said, I get my revenge now. I do the same thing to them at funerals, okay? <laughs> um, point at the grave, you'll be next. Now, that I, I think it's fair to say that no one would really be comfortable exerting that kind of pressure of a younger generation yeah to i the don't, same degree i, I think it's I implicit don't know i don't think anybody would do know, anything explicitly yeah, i don't know see i when we look at progress that we've made across a whole range of different characteristics you know the most obvious being gay marriage i mean you know i was born the year after homosexuality was legalized and now we live in a world where people can marry one another i mean that's an extraordinarily fast transition of attitudes people's commitment to the idea of marriage is remarkably sticky. That hasn't actually changed very much at all over that time. Most people think it's an institution that they'd like to be part of. And infidelity is, you know, awful. I mean, it's about one of the worst things that people can still do. So there, there is something I will say about that does remind me of one really important study that I want to draw attention to. And it enables me to mention the words penile blood flow is that men were asked essentially survey questions about the extent to which they were homophobic. And you put people into essentially the two groups, the more homophobic and the less homophobic. You show them gay porn, you measure penile blood flow, and you get more arousal in the homophobic group than you do in the non-homophobic group. So I think that what's really interesting about that is one of the reasons that we might judge other people who live a life different to the one that we expect them to or that goes against the grain is because we'd fucking like to. But convention, constraints, our parents, God, all get in the way of us being our authentic selves. Well, that takes you to the Shakespearean, you know, the lady doth protest too much, methinks, which is that people who are violently opposed to something may be secretly tempted themselves. So if we, um, we're thinking about this in the theme of the duck and the rabbit, and we've got these polarised positions that people adopt in relation to marriage, monogamy, kids and so on. If we're agreeing, well, let's say if we agree, we are agreeing, because how could you not agree with me, that people should be allowed to kind of find their own way through and many people will still want to marry and be monogamous and have kids but for those that don't we're more tolerant and less judgmental of them what can we do to make that more likely to bring about that more readily i think comedy 
is fabulous at changing people's minds. And I think it's, the you know, it's a strange thing because it's an evolutionary instinct that nearly everybody has. I mean, there are people with absolutely zero sense of humour, but they're quite rare. Not everybody can tell jokes, but most people appreciate them at some level. And it strikes me as a really useful way of, just as the role played by the jester at the court, who was allowed to say things obliquely and humorously that you couldn't say directly. I think comedians could play a really important role in this kind of thing. And comedy strikes me as a brilliant reframing exercise, which is it's an evolutionary reward through endorphin for changing your point of view or your frame of reference. And I yeah, think it's tremendously uh, valuable. See, as an academic, I don't know anything about comedy because we're just basically not funny. All we do is serious and learned and earnest. And if you introduce some levity or some humour into it, it's doing a disservice to the seriousness of your work. That's one of the things I've found really most challenging about being in academia. Yeah, that there's a kind of image thing that you have to be deadly serious about these things because um, They're important. Uh, anything else is, is almost a sign of weakness. Exactly, exactly. But I completely agree with you. And it's one of the reasons why we're doing this together is because we can have a laugh as well. Thanks a lot for that, Rory. I've still got a few unanswered questions about all of this. And probably the best way to answer them is to talk to someone who has done some serious academic research in the area. So before making my mind up, I wanted to speak to my colleague, Dr. Laura Kudrina, who is a behavioural psychologist at the University of Birmingham. Laura, listen, it's lovely to speak to you and to see you again. Great to see you as well. Thank you so much for having me. Why do you think so many people are still committed to the idea that romantic love should last? Certainly, if you look you know, back at the stories uh, that many children are told um, and were told about what love is supposed to be like, I think the idea and the impression is that passionate love will last forever. Um, you know, and their ideas around you need to find the one and you need to have certain feelings about someone in order for the relationship to work. And so all of the information or a lot of the information that people are told about relationships is that it needs to be based on this passionate love. There's an idea in society society that what initially is there is what should be sustained, even though that's not the case. What do you think we can do to get people to grow up a little bit about that distinction between passionate and companionate love? That's a really good question. I think books like yours that talk about the difference. <laughs> that's a great answer. <laughs> I, also, I didn't even ask you no, to say that. No, you didn't. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, but certainly sharing stories and questioning the evidence is what's really important. Um, and people being honest about kind of what their relationships are like, what has and hasn't worked for them. And there's a, you know, there's a proliferation of evidence in, in this day and age where people can share um, what, what love is like for them and what their experience of love is like for them. So if we have realistic expectations about that, um, then I think we have more of a chance and people are much more apt to listen to stories than they are to listen to evidence and facts and figures. So just saying that, you know, romantic love, passionate love turns into companionate love isn't enough. It's about finding people and sharing those stories. One well, of the reasons for doing this particular episode is the, uh, is the extraordinary reaction I got to my comments at the Hay Festival, which you'll be familiar with, around single, child-free women being happy. And the idea that they could be happy was met with some resistance. Why don't we trust single, child-free women to report being happy and really believe them? 
That response was really incredible to me, and it saddened me in the way that you've lost some of your optimism that affected my optimism and my my trust in society as well. Um, I don't know why. Um, certainly, I, I might suspect that it goes against people's worldviews and their beliefs and their own choices to such a degree that they feel threatened. And I think it's the case that, you know, once you decide to make a big decision, such as, let's say, being child-free or being married, then suddenly you want to think that your choice is the best choice. So if you are married, then you want to say, those singletons can't be happy. And if you are child-free, then you want to say, oh, those people with children can't be happy. And as we know from happiness research, <laughs> that's that's just not the case. There are some people who will or won't be happy. And we can make some conclusions on the basis of lots of different types of evidence about what on balance is likely to be the, the best for you know society at large. Um, but I do think people really want to confirm their worldviews in order to justify their choices. And it takes a bit more to um, see both sides. If we accept that another view exists, then we may feel that it calls into question the strength of feeling we have about our own view. I think it's entirely possible, isn't it, to simultaneously strongly believe in something, but also strongly believe that people can be different and also disagree with you. <laughs> I don't. It's really interesting that they seem to become mutually exclusive. That's right, it is. And I think it just goes to, you know, the psychological biases and confirmation bias. Once you start to see something one way, it's really difficult to see it another way. And it takes people who are willing to seek out evidence to the contrary, much in the way that you presented evidence in happiness, happy ever after, to the contrary. And then people didn't like that because it didn't fit with their worldviews and beliefs. And that's hard for people. It's hard for people to be able to hold both sides. I want to talk a little bit now, though, about gender differences. And of course, you know, we always have to caveat that very heavily with that there'll be much more variation within gender than there will be across genders so there's overlapping distributions to some considerable degree but let's put that to one side and let's sort of talk about some differences that exist across men and women i think it's fair to say that marriage is much better for him than it is for her that he will live a bit longer earn a bit more um she's taking much more of a gamble there's every chance that she might die sooner and end up less happy and I think that that is fair to argue based on the evidence. Of course, it's very difficult to you know, establish causality with this kind of stuff. And it's really difficult to be certain and to apply, apply this to how individuals live their lives. But yeah, especially in terms of the health effects, I think there are some serious questions for whether it is best um, for women to marry or to remain never married. Listen, let's talk about kids. Let's talk Adore about this topic, as you well know. Let's talk about kids. Let's talk about these selfish single women not having any, how they're childish and selfish from not having children. Isn't that one of the most ridiculous narratives? We know that single people or child-free people are much more likely to engage in pro-social acts. For example, women who haven't married had children are more likely to start up charities, more likely to help other people. They've got more time. People have got more time, not, not only women, men and women, have got more time for volunteering, for pro-social behaviours when they haven't selfishly had children that they inwardly look towards. So again, the narratives are very inconsistent with the consequences. They have more time as long as their work doesn't put upon them the fact that they are single and thus they should pick up the duties for those who are not or child-free in that sense. Because there is the perception in workplaces that if you are single or child-free, then you have more time and thus you have more time for work. So I think it's important to emphasize that you may not have more time for work. Yeah, right. 
I mean, it's certainly the case that even married people, let alone married people with children, get first dibs on holidays. They're not expected to be working evenings and weekends in the way that single people can because, well, they're not going to be doing anything else, are they? I think also we shouldn't underestimate the powerful role of jealousy. I think that if I'm seeing you live in a life that I would like to, but I feel constrained by social expectations, by God, by my parents, by my family, then I'm going to not like you. I think that's true. Jealousy and the extent to which people feel like they could be like that person someday are really important. And that's consistent with kind of the mechanism that links social comparisons between either kind of jealousy or hope. If you feel like you can't be like someone, then you're going to feel jealous. If you feel like you could, um, then you're going to feel hopeful and good that you feel like you could be like them someday. Um, So lifting some of that internalized stigma and some of that those internalized blocks um, that come from society as well. Um, are really important. Brilliant. Well, listen, it's fantastic you finished on hope because I'm hopeful that with a world of academics like you, Laura, that we will move to a world that is less polarised, less judgmental. You know, you know that I don't care what anyone does really, as long as it's not causing harm to other people or to me uh, in particular. And I'm hopeful and optimistic that we can move to a world where, well, basically where we judge a little less and live a little more. You've always been very optimistic, and I, I share in that optimism. Let, let's hope so. It's been really interesting to be talking about marriage and monogamy and to be reminded of just how much people care about these issues and just how polarized we can become. I've really enjoyed the different perspectives from my guests <laughs> and even from talking to Rory about it. Now, we can't really discuss marriage and monogamy without a third M, misogyny. Just think about it for a second. See if you can think of a single liberating word for sexually active women. I don't think there are any. There's no doubt that men seek to prevent women from being sexually active. And actually, it's not just men. Social class matters a lot too. There's evidence that middle-class women judge sexually active working-class women very harshly. All of us, irrespective of our gender, class, race, need to get over ourselves. We need to accept the power of the social narratives about how to live. We need to accept difference. It's been said that variety is the spice of life. We've also got good evidence that it's the survival of the species. But whilst recognising these differences, we also need to pay attention to the similarities between us. Many of us like a good story, and that's fine. But what polarisation does is it highlights differences and not those similarities. Whether we see the image as a duck or as a rabbit, it's still an animal. All of us, irrespective of our gender, class and race, want good relationships. It's the biggest factor determining our happiness. So let's not worry about whether it's marriage, monogamy, kids, child-free, polyamory, whatever it is. Let's all focus on having good relationships, getting out of bad ones, and getting out of judging other people about how they live. That was the Duck Rabbit Podcast. I'm Paul Dolan, and it was a Mother Come Quickly production. This podcast forms part of the Shaping the Post-COVID World Initiative at the LSC. Next time, we'll be looking at security and liberty. Does more security mean less freedom? And has COVID-19 fundamentally changed the relationship and trade-off between them? Has it changed their relationship with the state and what it can legitimately tell us to do and not to do? We'd love to hear from you. Please do let us know what you think. So please contact us on Twitter at Prof. Paul Dolan. <laughs>